Um, go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 12. We're going to be at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So we're, we're back in the gospel of John. Amen. Uh, as a church, we typically do book studies. Uh, we started studying the book of John uh, back in January of 2022. And we took some time off. We usually take time off during the summer to hit some topical uh, points that we feel like are applicable to the congregation. We still preach expositionally and exegete the scriptures when we do that. Um, but we don't just simply walk uh, verse by verse through a book. So uh, we took about 14 weeks off. Not about. We took 14 weeks off uh, from the Gospel of John and we are picking back up today in John chapter 12. A uh, couple of things that we did go over in the last 14 weeks. Um, one was we looked at our core values as a church. So if you're looking to get to know a little bit more about uh, this church, we, we did four sermons on our four core values. They're on Spotify. They're on YouTube. Uh, feel free to go check those out. Also, we did a, a five-week series on God's design for the family, um, really specifically speaking to uh, what a husband's role is, what a wife's role is, and uh, what, how they are to then parent children, and then what are children's responsibility to their parents, even at adulthood. So I uh, encourage you, um, as you have time, to go back, listen to those uh, if uh, you're learn if you're interested in learning more about our views on God's design for the family according to his uh, word. But today we are in John chapter 12, uh, 1 through 11, and we'll be trucking along here uh, for the next however long the Lord would have us uh, in John. And uh, I'm looking forward. It's a lot easier to just uh, look at a text and uh, to be able to just know where we're going. So you will always know where we'll be next week. Uh, based on where we stopped this week. Uh, we also share the text that we'll be preaching through the newsletter, so it's really important that you uh, stay up to date on that as well. We want you to be aware of God's Word. We want you to prepare your hearts uh, for worship. We want you to read the text um, and ask the Lord to work in and through it uh, as uh, you have your own time of study through it uh, before we gather as His people. So uh, let me read this for us, John chapter 12. Uh, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to, then I'm going to pray and ask God for his help, and uh, then we will uh, look at uh, this text and apply it to our lives. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Would you hear now the word of the Lord? Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, 
He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, This is the word of God. Uh, Thanks be to God for his word. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning. I ask, God, that you would move in the hearts of men, women, teens, children, that as they hear your word, that your spirit would apply it in ways that would help them to leave here different than they walked in. Lord, we need your spirit to be at work. And so I ask, God, that your spirit would rest upon the preaching, that your spirit would rest upon me, that your spirit would rest upon the hearts of those here. I pray that you would encourage those that are feeling heavy laden and that those that are haughty, thinking that there is nothing that your word has to offer, I pray that you would humble them, that you would bring conviction where needed and encouragement where needed. Father, would you use this text for our good and your glory? And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this sermon sermon is Responding to the Power of Christ. And the reason why I emphasize the power of Christ is because of the context of our passage. Uh, Just to catch us up to speed because we've been out of the Gospel of John for quite a while, In John chapter 11, by way of messenger sent by Martha and Mary, Jesus learns that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. Uh, He's told that Lazarus is on his deathbed, basically. And upon hearing this news, Jesus decides to wait. It's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to wait until it's time to go. My time, not yours. Upon his waiting, Lazarus dies. And Jesus even says, it is good that Lazarus has died, and it's, it's, it's for your good and for God's glory. And then he goes, and what happens? He, he raises Lazarus. He, he raises him from the grave, from death. It is in verse 25 of chapter 11, that we get the monumental statement, the fifth of the seven I am statements in the gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I mean, what an authoritative proclamation of power. Uh, What a preposterous claim to the carnal mind, to the unconverted man. I mean, that's something that is unheard of. What does Jesus do? 
He authenticates his claim by raising Lazarus. And not just simply raising him immediately, but raising him from the dead after he had been dead for four full days. And this was no secret event. Jesus does this in front of a multitude of witnesses. And this public demonstration of the authoritative power of Jesus Christ led to a warrant for his arrest. Uh, If you lift your eyes up uh, to verse 57 of chapter 11, you'll see the result of this. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, speaking of Jesus here, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they've seen the power of Christ. They've responded by putting out an arrest warrant for our Savior. So this is the scene as we enter into chapter 12. Jesus is a wanted man because of who he has claimed to be, namely God, and because of the power that has affirmed his claims of authority. I mean, he's shown his claims to be authentic. He's affirmed his claim by the miracles that he has performed. And in our text, we see three responses to the power of Christ. Three responses to the power of Christ. Let me give you these three if you're taking notes. I encourage you to do so. One, we see humble adoration. Humble adoration. Second, we see Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Third, we see growing curiosity. Growing curiosity. Look here with me at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So let's stop there because there's a couple of details that we need to take note of. First, we see a timestamp. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 of John really cover the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, scholars would say that that's between two to three years. So he's spent a lot of time writing about the public ministry of Christ. But then here in chapter 12, John is is really highlighting the last week of Jesus. So the last 10 chapters of the gospel of John cover the final week of Jesus' life, the time known as Holy Week, which led Jesus Christ to the cross. So this is a real pivotal point in John's gospel here. The location is very significant That's why John mentions it. We mentioned here that it's in Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. Now, why is this significant? Because this is where the Jewish leaders resided. I mean, this is the center of Israel. This is the the center of the political, the religious power. This is where they gathered. This is where things happened. I mean, this is the red-hot center of the arrest warrant. This is the capital city. 
I mean, most people, if they are, they have a, a arrest warrant that is a, a false arrest warrant, they would avoid the people trying to arrest them. Uh, most people wouldn't go towards the people that were out for their head. But Jesus heads straight for the cross. He's on the way to Calvary. Jesus Christ knew what was ahead. Reminder, nobody took Jesus's life. He willingly laid down his life for his people. Jesus Christ came on a mission. And that mission was to head to the cross to redeem those who God the Father had given to him and to save them and secure them forever. Mark 10, 45, we're reminded, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Galatians, says in verse 20 of chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Friend, do you understand that Christ willingly died for his people? That he willingly went straight to the cross to accomplish the mission, the redemption of your soul. And it's a beautiful reminder here. See, Jesus did not avoid or evade what was ahead. He pressed on in the face of death for the redemption of his people. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, says, quote, a more deliberate, voluntary, calm walking up to death than our Lord's last journey into Judea, it is impossible to conceive. Like we can't fathom someone going to death in this calm, intentional way as Jesus Christ did. I mean, I, I hope if you are a Christian, it helps to See, helps you to see the beauty of Christ's death for you. That, that he had you in mind when he went intentionally. Then we see here in verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here we see our first response in humble adoration for the power of Christ. Now, Mary rightly gets the most attention because of her extravagant display, but we shouldn't be so quick to overlook uh, Lazarus and Martha here. First, let's look at Martha. What does the text tell us she's doing? 
She's serving. Now, we know this was very uh, typical of Martha. Uh, It was a part of her DNA. Her characteristics was to serve others. Uh, In Luke chapter 10, if you recall, uh, we learn about Martha. But Martha's a little bit different there, isn't she? Uh, If you recall, Martha actually goes and she invites Jesus uh, to come to their house. Uh, Then she is there uh, and she's welcoming them. Uh, She's serving. And then in verse 40 we read, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And what's Mary doing? Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. So Martha is serving. Mary is sitting with Jesus here. She goes up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? That my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Like, like, don't you see all the work I'm doing here? You need to tell her to chip in and and get active and, and get busy like me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, a lot of times this passage and this scene is often misinterpreted, in my opinion. Um, We're not to read this and interpret that serving is wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is talking about is the prioritization of serving and how we then prioritize different areas of our life. Like, if Jesus is there, you should probably be learning to go to him and to learn from him. And furthermore, if you are serving, you should not be worried about what others are doing or are not doing. See, the difference here in our text, after she has really observed the power of Christ more specifically, is that she's serving, but she's not pointing fingers as to what others are doing. She's joyfully serving the Lord. She's not complaining. She is simply serving with a grateful heart. She's using her gifts for the glory of God and for the good of God. Of others. You know, people say, like, don't be a Martha. No, we need Marthas, but we need the Marthas of John chapter 12. We need the Marthas that will serve others joyfully and not point to what others aren't doing, but will look to God for his pleasure and not man's. And that's what we see happening here. We also read that Lazarus is there. And he's just sitting with Jesus. He's just enjoying this time with Christ. He's basically a a living testimony, a a witness of the power of Christ. Here we see that there's a true resurrected body. So he's, he's there. He's in flesh and bones. He's got some real physical wants and needs because he's hungry. He's ready to dine. He's ready to consume the food that is coming. 
It was custom for dinner guests to lie with their heads kind of near a low table, and then they would recline, they would rest their elbow and put their head down there, or rest their elbow on the table and, and put their head there and then eat with the other hand. It's really uncomfortable. I don't like eating like when I'm laying down, so I don't know how they did it, but they did. And this is how it was happening. So we're told that Lazarus is there with the Savior, waiting to eat, joining. Martha's joyfully serving. Lazarus is a living testimony. And we read that Mary takes a pound. Now, this isn't our pound. It would be about 11 ounces in the word that's translated from the Greek. She takes this ointment. It's made from pure nard. Uh, this is extracted from the nard plant. Uh, it's from, it would have been imported from India and, and brought there, so it would have been a very expensive uh, fragrance. Uh, it, it, when it's extracted, as a very rich smell. So it was something that was very valuable. Uh, in those times, it would have prepared a body for burial to kind of deter the stench until it was actually in the ground. Uh, it would then uh, be a fragrance even for a wedding ceremony. Uh, it would also be used for anointing somebody, anointing one's head, uh, cleaning someone's feet, as we see here, after they had been uh, walking a long journey on a hot day. Their feet would be dirty, so there would be a washing of the feet. And the highest guests would get the ointment, the, the anointing of the oil to show their priority here. John tells us that this particular bottle was very expensive. In fact, Judas puts a price tag of a year's salary, an average salary, on this particular bottle that Mary has just unleashed on Jesus Christ. In verse 5, in his rebuttal, Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A denarii was a common day's pay. So day labor would be one denarii. And about 300 denarii, after some days taken off, some holidays were given, would be about a year's salary. Historians, scholars agree that this would probably be around $30,000 in our day. So we're not talking about something that was uh, just of minimal, even tangible value here. We're talking about something that was of high value to Mary and to those around her. They, they saw what she was doing, and she under, they understood that her actions are radical. Her devotion here is extravagant. Uh, she's not cautiously patting this ointment on our Savior. Instead, she is lavishly pouring out her cherished possession with no regard to the cost or what others might have to say. I mean, John tells us that she pours out an abundance of oil, far more than what was needed, so much that she untied her hair and used it to wipe up the excess. I mean, what a display! What a picture! 
What a complete picture of just unleashed devotion and dedication and worship, holding nothing back because of Christ. We also read that the fragrance filled the whole house. I believe this is added to really underscore the excessiveness of this offering. I mean, you ever walk by someone that has a little too much perfume or cologne on? I was at a meeting with a friend at a coffee shop a couple weeks ago, and there was just somebody in there, and it was just like, I mean, it was just like hitting you in the face. And if that was you, then, you know, no, no offense. <laughs> but we can really picture this, that the fragrance was just overwhelming. It was, was pouring out into the streets. It, it, it attracted others to this gathering. Mary's act was costly. It was courageous. It was unhindered devotion. I mean, Mary provides an example of humble adoration as she shows deep affection for the Savior, not just in words, but in deed. But not everybody's a fan of Mary's actions here, are they? We see here in verse 4, Judas Iscariot speaks up. He says, John writes, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And, and then we get some context. He says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here we see the second response to the power of Christ. We see selfish ambition. I want you to think about this for a moment. Judas was one of the 12. So the two to three years of public ministry of Jesus, Judas was there. He's learning. He's spending time with Jesus. He's hearing the teachings of Jesus. He's fellowshipping with Jesus. He's probably uh, preaching as well. He's probably uh, helping to lead others to Jesus. He watched miracles. I mean, the things that Judas witnessed, I mean, we could only fathom as New Testament here and now Christians. But Judas's actions and experiences were empty because he was not a converted man. His response to the power of Christ was that of selfish ambition. Friends, let this be a reminder to us that position and privilege saves no one. Saves absolutely nobody. We're told that Judas challenged Mary's act of humble adoration under the guise of caring for the poor. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, John tells us that Judas was a thief all along. So Judas was a hypocrite. He was a thief. He used to help himself to what was put into the money bag, 
Or in other words, he would steal money given to further the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. And he would take it for himself. See, Judas had one thing on his mind, and that was Judas. Judas was a man that thought about himself and himself alone. To Judas, Jesus was nothing more than an attraction of a traveling carnival. It was a, we'll use Jesus to to bring in more people to to get better crowds and, and bigger participants, and then hopefully that will gain a bigger purse that I can take part in. See, Judas wrongly elevated the physical benefits of knowing Christ above the spiritual benefits of knowing our Savior. And when he saw Mary's costly act of humble adoration, he could only think of a missed opportunity for financial gain. I mean, I would be remiss to not mention the prosperity gospel here. We have so many people parading around as godly men, saying Jesus, saying the right Christianese, and they are only in it for personal gain. And friends, let me encourage you to check your heart as well. How and why are you following Christ? Are you in it for the physical benefits? Are you simply looking to Jesus to give you your best life now? Are you simply looking to Jesus to give you a purpose-filled life? Or are you looking to Christ as the only hope in life and death and then surrendering everything you are and you have to him? Because that's what followers of Christ do. Listen, the spiritual blessings of Jesus, knowing God, that that is the reward. The eternal reward of heaven is eternity with the creator. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the blessings and the benefits and no sickness and no tears. And I mean, those are all good things. I can't wait. But the goal and the prize of heaven is God himself. And if you have not grasped that in your Christian walk, I pray that today the Spirit would just imprint that upon your heart and would renew your mind to live different according to that reality. I mean, Judas is the chief example of where selfish ambition and the love of money can lead. We know Judas eventually, what does he do? He betrays our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Not even a portion of of what are a small portion to what is done here by Mary. I mean, let this be a warning and reminder to us. I mean, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. 
And are you just looking for the personal gains? Uh, one of the church fathers, Chrysostom, writes, quote, a dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables both eyes and ears and makes man worse to deal with than a wild beast, allowing a man to consider neither conscience nor friendship nor fellowship nor salvation. This is Judas. This is the example. This is his response to the power of Christ, his time with Christ. He wants his own way. He calls out Mary for her humble adoration. He says, no, no, here's what we should be doing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus said in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want you to see something here. If you're a Christian, we see here that Jesus Christ is the advocate of the believer. I mean, he's the one that is defending us all the way. He is always defending his people. The believer's position before God depends on Christ's defense and advocacy for us. In Revelation 12, 10, we also see here, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. So not also is Christ our mediator and always advocating for us with God, sitting at the right hand, making uh, advocacy for our transgressions. He is also the one who has defeated the accuser. He's defeated the accuser by, by taking away the pain of death. He has taken away anything the accuser has to throw in the face of Christians once and for all. You know, the enemy wants to remind us that we fail. The enemy wants to remind us that we should be doing this, we should be doing that. And yes, we, we need to confess those things. We need to, to pray. We need to ask for forgiveness. That's why we do that here corporately as a body of believers. We want to acknowledge where we've fallen. We want to then acknowledge that we need help. And then we want to acknowledge that Christ has paid for our transgressions. We're told that the accuser, he's been thrown down. There is nothing that Satan has on the true believer. And, and, and here... I really see a practical example of Jesus Christ defending Mary in the face of an accusation from Judas, who is called a devil. We're told that the devil enters Judas himself later on when he betrays him. And Jesus is defending. I mean, it probably wasn't, this is my own interpretation, 
probably wasn't just like, oh, man, just leave her alone. It's probably, stop it. Like, no. She's mine. You stop what you're saying. She's done, and she's doing the right thing. Jesus says, my death is near. Like, she's preparing me for her eternal security. She's helping. She's doing the right thing. And Jesus is not minimizing the importance of caring for those in need. Rather, he is saying that the time on earth is short because he's heading to the cross. So his, pri- the, his followers, his people must prioritize their devotion to him, not to other people. See, listen, sometimes serving others can get in the way of really serving Christ. Listen to me here. Sometimes we get an idea and that practical means serving others is the same as our devotion to God. See, Scripture never tells us to elevate service over worship. We're never told that we are to, to neglect the worship of God in order to serve others. No, we worship God, and in response, we then serve others because of that. And then we gather again on Sundays, and we're encouraged to go and do it again and to continue doing it until we meet our Savior. J.C. Ryle is helpful here again. I quote, Doubtless it is well to feed and clothe and nurse the poor, but it is never to be forgotten that to glorify Christ among them is far better. Moreover, it is much easier to give temporal than spiritual help. For we have our reward in thanks and gratitude and the praise of man. To honor Christ is far harder and gets us no temporal praise at all. End quote. Much, more, much, much more could be said. But for the sake of time, we'll move on to our third and final response to the power of Christ. We see here growing curiosity. Verses 9 through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So a large crowd has Uh, realize that Jesus is there, that they're having a a celebration for Jesus, that that Lazarus is also there, the one whom Jesus has raised from the dead. These people are curious. They're they're like, let's go see. Let's go and and partake in what is happening. They want to know what's going on. Who is this guy? Is, Is Lazarus, is he really alive? Is Jesus really who people are saying that he is? Like, is the power real? 
Apparently, the curiosity led to conversions. It says many people left there believing in Christ. So their curiosity, their intentionality of going to see this Jesus led to belief in Jesus. I want you to notice, though, that it says many and not all. We know that many of these Jews will be the same ones that are yelling, crucify him a few days later. But some are being saved. The Jewish leaders are unhappy. They don't like this. They do not like what's going on. We'll put them back up in the selfish ambition category. They only cared about their own power. They cared about their own shine. They feel as if Jesus is infringing on their status as the chief religious authorities, and they want to stop it. They want to stop it so much that they decide that they're going to also not only want to kill Jesus, but now they want to kill the evidence. They want to kill Lazarus himself. Talk about tampering with the evidence here. But nevertheless, the power of Jesus cannot be denied. And we see in this text three responses. We see three responses to Christ. We see that you can't encounter Jesus and not respond in some way. I mean, common sense tells us that anything of significance demands a response. Uh, Take, for example, if you were given an unfavorable health diagnosis, if you were to go to your doctor and they were to say you had a a terminal disease or a, a deadly virus, you would need to respond in a way to uh, mitigate or eradicate that disease, that virus for, for your health and for the health of those around you. I mean, if you don't respond in the right way, you could lead to many serious things, even death. And friends, the diagnosis here is simple. We must respond to Christ. We must respond to the power of Jesus Christ. We have no other option. We have to do something with Jesus. So how will you respond? How have you responded? Is it in humble adoration? I mean, do you live your life in a way where you show others and Christ that you are completely sold out. That there's nothing that would stand in the way of your relationship with God. I mean, listen, it's often good things that get in the way of our time with Jesus. Schoolwork, it's work, it's friendships relationships, it's kids, it's just busyness. For some, it's all you have your mind on is what you can get. 
And maybe devotion and humble adoration to Christ is shown here. It's just kind of simply a, a hindrance, a, a hurdle to your goals in life. So, so maybe you're in the, the selfish ambition category. Maybe you've been looking at this whole Christianity thing as just kind of like, like creamer and coffee. You know, just a little additive. It's just a little something extra. And it's not a full commitment to Christ, to, to bearing your cross, to, to the pursuit of holiness, to, to giving all that you have to Jesus. So if he calls you to, to say, yep, I need that, you willingly give generously. See, God blesses people with money. God definitely gives financial resources. But your financial resources are not yours to do with what you will. They are to be stewarded for the glory of God. And that's provision for your family. That's, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a poor man's mentality here in Christianity. But I am saying that we must make sure that we are willing to give all that we have if Christ calls us to do so. Are we helping to advance the gospel? Are we helping to contribute to the needs of those around us? Are we helping in the relief of the poor, concern for the sick? Are we helping in these things? Are we we're keeping our, our little treasures over here and we're saying, no, mine, mine? I mean, how are you living your life? Maybe you're in the category of you have growing curiosity. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a student and you're at Liberty University because you have to be. And you're here at a church service because you want to check the box for your parents. Or maybe you've bought into a, a, a pseudo-Christianity that says you can live however you want as long as you say you're a Christian. Maybe it's Jesus come along and, and kind of help me do these things and I'll give you a little glory. Maybe you have been asking for purpose in life. Let me just encourage you. Today is your day. There's no time to wait. You know, children, teens, students, it doesn't matter. Like, we are not promised tomorrow. Listen, today is the day for salvation. Repent and believe. Turn to Christ. You have no other hope in this world. And you have no other hope in the life to come. How will you respond to the power of Christ? 
Don't put off tomorrow what needs to be done today. What needs to be done now, where you're sitting, where you are, cry out to the Lord. Pray. Ask God to save you. Confess your sins. Trust in Christ for the only hope that he is who he says he is, that he died on your behalf, that he then was buried, that he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he's seated there making intercession for his people, interceding on our behalf. And he will secure all those who are his until the day of glory. Call upon him. Repent. Turn from your sins. The life that you have been living apart from Christ, flee those things. Look to Christ. For those that are his, and this text help us to see the beauty of our Savior. That he loves us. That he willingly died for us. That he is defending us. And in response, may we live lives that show the world and show our Savior that we understand the great cost that Calvary was. And there is nothing that we have or do that could ever measure. And so we will give it up for his name's sake. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you, God, that you are a God who saves. We thank you, God, that you are a God who knows your people. And there's nothing that can take your people from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on a cross on our behalf, we, that there is salvation offered today in what has been done. And I pray and I ask you now in this moment to, to work in the lives of those that may not follow you. I pray and ask, I plead, Lord, that your spirit would be at work that it would regenerate the hearts of the wicked, that they would respond in faith in Christ. Oh, God, would you help us? I pray all of this in Jesus' name.